You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David Sloan Wilson, who is a professor emeritus of biology and anthropology at SUNY Binghamton, and also the president of the, what is it, the Pro-Social Project? Is that the- Pro-Social World is the uh, nonprofit organization, Pro-Social World. Right, and a whole bunch of other projects, which we'll talk about. But of course, you're also the author of countless articles and many books, uh, many of which I have read. I think the earliest one that I read was called Unto Others, which was co-authored with the philosopher Elliot Sober. Also one called Darwin's Cathedral, which is a study of religion. You also wrote this one called Evolution for Everyone, which is, I guess, your first popular book. Although I can never really, I don't know where the boundary line is between popular and and academic. Then this one called This View of Life, which the title, I think, came from the periodical or blog or whatever it's called that you... Well, originally it comes from the final passage of The Origin of Species, where Darwin writes, there is grandeur in this view of life. Yes, but you also had some uh, series of writings, both for yourself and others, that was under that title. This one called The Neighborhood Project, which is one of the initiatives that came out of your desire to impact the world positively. This one called Does Altruism Exist? And the two most recent books, one is a memoir called A Life Informed by Evolution, and a novel called Atlas Hugged. Welcome, David. Thank you, Greg. Always happy to talk with uh, a person like you. Well, you know, those books cover a wide range of, of topics, and your research and your career has roamed far and wide. You have a unifying theory, but the subject matter has gone from the study of parasites to the study of birds and fish, and at some point you made this crossing of the chasm to studying humans, which normally animal behavior people don't do, but which you you embraced. And that led to a study of religion, philosophy, of literature, and even economics. So that's quite a wide range of, of topics which most people in academia consider to be separate. I guess the first question I would ask is, do you consider yourself to be something of, of a polymath or, or do you consider yourself to be something like a, like a hedgehog right? where you're, you're, you're using this theory to explain everything? Well, yes, I am a polymath and I can prove that I'm a polymath by all of those things, all published in peer-reviewed journals, which is the gold standard for professional accomplishment. But I don't attribute it to my personal attributes. Um, I attribute it to this theory, this amazing theory. And I think that property of explaining so much manifested at the very beginning with Charles Darwin himself. Uh, And think of all the different things that he studied, everything from barnacles to human uh, morality. And so when he ended the final passage of Origin of Species, there is grandeur in this view of life. He was saying that there's something about this simple theory that explains everything. And in 1973, which is when I entered the field as a graduate student, an article was published by the geneticist Theodosius Jobjansky, and the title was, Nothing Makes Sense Except in the Light of Evolution. So he was making that point in 1973. Of course, the accumulation of knowledge had been enormous between Darwin and Jobjansky. A hundred years had 
had passed. And now when we fast forward to the present, 50 more years, we find orders of magnitude more information that needs to be organized. And it is still the case that Darwin's theory of evolution is the unrivaled explanatory framework for all living processes. It is indeed true that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Now, when we go to humans, because the very concept that humans are not part of biology is weird. <laughs> um, but there's a historical reason why this framework, for all of its explanatory scope within biology, was actually constricted and was not applied to humans, especially human cultural evolution, until the closing decades of the 20th century. But now that is taking place. And so I always love to think of myself as a participant during a very interesting period of history, the last 50 years. I like to say that the last 50 years is not just 10% of the scientific revolution. There's something about the ideas that have developed during the last 50 years that are foundational for how we think about nature and therefore how we act. And part of that is the maturation of evolutionary theory. The other part of it is the maturation of complex systems theory, which could not take place until the advent of widespread computing. And so between complex system science and what we call generalized Darwinism, Darwinian evolution generalized beyond genetic evolution, this is foundational for the way we understand all aspects of life and human life, and therefore should be and will be transformative for how we think and therefore how we act. So we're all present at a very important time in intellectual history. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody would have any problem with the application of biology to things that concern our body, right? Obviously, we wouldn't want to have a doctor that was unfamiliar with biology, right? And I think if we're worried about things like infectious diseases, it would be nice to have a little knowledge of biology. But it seems like when it comes to the social sciences, there's been some resistance. And I guess this resistance goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, right, where they had the nomos physis divide, right? The stuff that belongs to nature and the stuff that belongs to to, to humans. So why did it, do you think it took so long after Darwin for the idea of evolution or the application of these biological insights to the study of human societies? I mean, I remember even going to the Animal Behavior Society meetings 25 years ago, I think where I first met you, when I said I was an economist, people looked at me like I was completely out of place. I said, we, we don't do humans here. <laughs> why, why do you suppose that there has been this resistance? Well, and yet in 1898, <laughs> Thorstein Veblen, the economist, wrote an article titled, Why is Economics Not an Evolutionary Science? And if you read that article, you'll see that it's amazingly prescient, amazingly modern, very quotable all these years later. You have the pragmatists, people in America like William James and uh, Charles Saunders uh, Paris, who really understood the implications of Darwin's theory for epistemology, for our understanding of, of knowledge. So that divide between biology and humans did not exist at first. You had Darwin and Wallace and everyone else in his time. Of course, Spencer, Herbert Spencer was a giant 
in his day, and his theory of evolution did not stand the test of time, but it was very much about, really, about human cultural evolution as being progressive and and so on and so forth. So the division came more or less with the onset of genetics, the rediscovery of Mendel's work in the early 20th century. And at that point, at last, people thought that they had a, a me the mechanism of inheritance. And so the study of evolution became centered on Mendelian genetics. And these fuzzy, woolly ideas about cultural evolution were more or less just missed. And also, you know, anything that smacked of progressive evolution, that evolution had a purpose, some long-term goals or trends or things like that, that was frankly exorcised from evolutionary biology. And what and this dogma formed, we can look back and we can see it as a dogma. Evolution has no purpose. Organisms just vary. Only the immediate environment does the selection. And that was very thin soil for a sociologist or an anthropologist, because in our species, culture is paramount. We're not just determined by our genes, my friend. And, and so when evolution became that gene-centric from other the human-oriented disciplines, which quite properly was centered on culture, whatever that might be, looked over at, at the biologists and they said, you guys are genetic determinists. And that extended all the way up to the mid-20th century. Even um, Ed Wilson's book, Sociobiology, which was magnificent in many respects and hailed as a triumph for the study of social behavior in all other species, the last species on humans was highly controversial and in part for good reason because Ed, I wor I've worked closely with Ed, and of course he later in subsequent books began to pay attention to culture himself. But at that point, then, there was this disconnect. So getting back on track and what we now call generalized Darwinism, Darwinian evolution as any process that combines the three ingredients of variation, selection, and replication, no matter what the underlying mechanisms, that had to be reborn, basically, in the closing decades of the 20th century, and now is in full swing. It's very exciting now. I mean, the historians are going to look back upon this time, and they're going to say that this was a synthetic period for the study of the human-related disciplines, just like the 20th century was so synthetic for the study of genetic evolution. I think when, when you move beyond just studying human, human civilization and you start saying things like policy is an extension of biology, do you think that makes people think of social Darwinism and that social Darwinism has sort of a bitter aftertaste? I actually did some quite a bit of reading of Herbert Spencer back when I was in, in school. He's probably not the, the worst of the social Darwinists, right? He, he was not in the same ballpark as these eugenicists, but it, it does seem that legacy made people very resistant to the idea of advocating policies informed by Darwinian ideas. Yeah, a lot of scholarship is important here. It's really important for scholars to be involved in this because many people are under social Darwinism. It's in, first there was Darwin's theory of evolution, and then there are all these horrible people took it, and they became eugenicists. And, and so we really have to worry about evolution and all the misuses of evolution. It's not nearly that that simple. The first people to become attracted to Darwin's theory of evolution were the socialists. People like Peter Kropotkin and others who say, hey, this is great. This means that the established social order 
There's nothing special about it. It's not God-ordained. If Darwin is right, then we can out with the old and in with the new. And so there was a whole thread of Darwinian socialism. In addition to that, there were people like Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, and with hereditary genius, and Ronald Fisher, one of the pioneers of population genetics theory, was really a true blue animal breeder, basically. Their take was that we need to breed humans like animals. The bottom line is any tool can also be used as a weapon. And so any powerful idea can be used for good or ill. The reason that Herbert Spencer was so admired during his day, far more than Darwin at first, was that he offered a kind of a grand theory of nature and humanity that did not rely on religion, along with people like Augusta Comte. And so the birth of humanism and the age of reason and the, the enlightenment that we can somehow explain all of this without recourse to religion, a science of man, you might say, and it was progressive. And for most part, it was optimistic. So Spencer, in his early days, as you know, if you've read him, was very progressive. He was for women's rights and children's rights. He was anti-empire. Um, but he also had a bit of a laissez-faire to him, a bit of a libertarian. And so he did uh, argue that we should let nature take its course and let the weak be removed and the strong prevail. So, you know, there you have it, a very complex history. And when we unravel it all, I think, and a little bit more, Greg, because you're part of this history, but I think our audience needs to know about it. Something else that took place in the 20th century, you could call it the age of reductionism, as if we can explain all complex things in terms of their component parts, including everything social needs to be explained in terms of individual action, let us say individual self-interest. And so you have rational choice theory in economics, you have selfish gene theory and in evolution, you have methodological individualism and in the other branches of the social sciences and so the, the, the upper things, we don't understand them until we understand them in terms of their parts. And when you look at, for example, my, my own field of evolution was subject to that just like all the other fields. But we've already said that so much about life and evolution is systemic. And, and so here's where group selection comes in. The idea that our species is highly group selected, that means we're ultra cooperative in just about everything distinctive that you can say about us is a form of cooperation in terms of our capacity for symbolic thought. For that, you need group selection. And group selection was- It was taboo. rejected, <laughs> including by evolutionary psychologists. And so, you know, the first generation of evolutionary psychologists, people like Lita Cosmides and John Truby and David Buss and all those folks, they were courageous about evolution and human behavior, but they were totally doctrinaire about individual selection. I mean, their heroes were Dawkins and Maynard Smith and Trivers and, and Alexander and all of, all of those folks. And so somehow they had to explain, uh, their mission was to explain human nature and human evolution without invoking group selection. <laughs> Good luck with that. Look, in, the, in, the, in, in economics and political science, right, methodological individualism rules. And that's the background that I come from. And so when, uh, right around the same time, I was exposed to 
Dawkins' explanation of the selfish gene theory and your explanation of uh, group selection. Both of those, for me, happened around the same time, and, and I found them both to be fascinating. But it seems like the idea of the selfish gene seemed to be accepted more readily than that of, of group selection. In order to have an evolutionary model, you need a, a unit of analysis. And so I think people felt comfortable moving back and forth between the individual organism and the gene, but then they didn't feel as comfortable moving from the individual organism to the uh, supra-individual organism. Why do you think there was this sort of asymmetry in terms of understanding the relationship between these different levels of these different units of analysis, these different levels of selection? I think it was, an, I think it was in large part a rising tide of individualism and reductionism that they raised all boats. And so you shouldn't really look at entire disciplines in isolation. When the same thing is going on, roughly the same thing is going on in economics and evolutionary biology, and they're not communicating with each other, not very much. I always love to talk about the knowledge and practice archipelago, many islands of thought and practice with a little communication among islands. And I think the real culprit here, which is fascinating, is that, of course, it's a very complex world out there, and it's easy to appreciate the complexity in words. But when you try to really scientifically study complexity, what are your resources? And for a long time, the main resource was mathematics. And mathematical models can do wonders. Look at what Newton did with math. He could predict the orbit of the planets as far ahead in the future as you want. But mathematics can't handle complex systems. I mean, you're familiar with this. Uh, as soon as you get agents that are interacting in a nonlinear fashion and so on, there's the two-body problem and there's the three-body problem. <laughs> and, and this huge increase in complexity. Population genetics, one locus, no problem. Two locus, no problem. Three, four, five locus with epistatic interactions and environmental effects and frequency dependence. Just forget about it. And so to model things mathematically, you are, it's the de facto denial of, of complexity. The most you can do is mathematically model a few variables. The most you can do. And in an experiment, the most you can do is vary one or a few variables. Everything else must be held constant. And so the entire scientific project before the advent of, of computing, widespread computing, was constrained, was a de facto denial of complexity. And it's there, for example, optimization theory forces you to think of a lower level agent as the optimizer, either the individual and rational choice theory or the inclusive fitness, the organism maximizing its inclusive fitness theory. You can't do optimization theory without that. And this has been written about, uh, including philosophers such as William Win Bill Wimsett, called it the reductionistic bias. The reductionistic bias that we have to go beyond. In a multi-level selection model, it's complicated. It's not just a population of individuals, it's a population of groups. And within each group, the altruistic gene is declining in frequency, but the groups are different from each other. And the most altruistic groups are, in some sense, outcompeting the less altruistic group, then you have to put all that together. And you're just straining your capacity in order to do it. But uh, nowadays, I think, just as the tide of individualism and reductionism swept in, it's sweeping out. And everybody across disciplines is adopting a more systemic approach, as well they should. And so that's why the last 50 years 
as more than just 10% of the scientific revolution. Why the ideas, these ideas, are so foundational for how we think and therefore how we act. To summarize the the point that you made with, with Ed Wilson is selfishness beats altruism within groups, but altruistic groups beat selfish groups, right? And the rest is is, is commentary. Now, people see altruism all around them, and you can't assume it away. But prior to group selection theory, was it simply the use of evolutionary game theory and kin selection? Were those the two tools that were meant to explain the, the altruism that we saw around us? And why are those inadequate? What is it that group selection theory adds to the mix that those two theories fail to provide? Just to begin with the what can be called the fundamental problem of social life is that, first of all, natural selection is based on relative fitness. It doesn't matter what how well you survive and reproduce in absolute terms, only compared to other organisms in your vicinity. And because of relative fitness, any behavior, any trait that is oriented towards the welfare of others or one's group as a whole has a disadvantage, an inherent disadvantage compared to a more self-serving trait. So that's why selfishness beats altruism within groups. That's huge. This only dawned upon Darwin gradually. At first he thought that his theory could explain all examples of design that had been attributed to a creator. But then it turned out that anything prosocial in humans or any other organism, anything dedicated to the welfare of others or society as a whole, he could not explain it because of this relative fitness quandary, unless he added a layer of natural selection. And then he could easily speculate that groups of altruists will robustly, if they're internally altruistic, will robustly compete groups of individuals who cannot inhere. So altruistic groups beat selfish groups. And so now you have opposing forces. Now that clarity, I think Darwin was clear on, on that, but that clarity was not carried forward. And so you had a lot of loose thinking in which people talked about for the good of the group, for the good of the species, for the good of the ecosystem, for the good of the individual. They just didn't understand the the dynamic. Today we call that naive group selection. And it all came to a head in the 1960s with George C. Williams and his book, Adaptation and Natural Selection. And that was the foundation for uh, Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. In the first place, Williams really imposed this dynamic, really forcefully asserted it. No group-level adaptations without a process of group-level selection. And then he added a second strong claim, which was that even though altruism can evolve by group selection in principle, in practice, it almost never happens. It's almost never the case that group-level selection can trump individual-level selection. And so both of those claims carried the day. And then for a period of decades, that uh, was the dark age of, of group selection. You need to have an alternative explanation. And so the alternative was a combination of kin selection. So I'm, help, I'm, I'm selfish, but I'm, I'm helping my genes and the bodies of others in addition to myself. Okay, so that turns altruism towards kin into a selfish act. Okay, me maximizing my inclusive fitness. Or with reciprocation, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. So once again, 
An act of cooperation, I'm helping you, is explained by the fact that I get some kind of return benefit, so therefore it's good for me after all. You know, I'd like to point out, Greg, that forget about science. If you just talk with everyday folks, then you find the same variation. There's some people who think that altruism is out there, and other people think, no, everything's selfish. And if you're being nice to me or if I'm nice to you, it's all because I get some pay up in, in the end. That, that's something which exists in folk psychology, and uh, you get both kinds. Isn't it interesting in the first place that you have that kind of cognitive polymorphism in human life, and then it gets, I think if that's the common sense that people start with, then they turn that into formal theorizing. I think that's an interesting thing to add to our the way we're thinking about it. Now, now, in order for group selection to work, I mean, you have to have coherent groups or groups that have at least some definitional boundaries, right? Otherwise, the, the, the groups just dissolve into one big group. And humans are, are a little more difficult to study. I mean, when I remember when I was trying to explain group selection to a biologist friend who didn't believe in it, the example I used was the groups of pathogens within each host and how virulence can decline over time. And that's a mechanism that most biologists understand. I don't think they thought of it originally as a group selection story, but but it makes sense to me, at least as a group selection story. But there, you know, you have these distinct sort of communities within each, each host. How permeable can these boundaries be and have group selection still work? Because I think you, you point out the group selection only works when you have very specific conditions. I'll give you some of the ways that I make group selection intuitive. One is the game of Monopoly. So imagine playing the game of Monopoly. That's a single group of individuals who are trying to capture all the real estate and drive the others bankrupt. One group, the only competition is between members of that group. That's a very discreet group. There's no, there's the players. Other people might be in the room, but that group has very discrete boundaries for the duration of the game, and there's almost no context for cooperation. The only context is if you're losing, you might gang up with, you might team up with other losers to collectively beat the current front runner just so that you could end up competing with, e with each other. So that is within group selection, pure and simple. Now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament in which the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops its real estate the fastest. All of a sudden, teamwork is the only thing that counts. There's nothing to beat for your neighbor. It's a process of between-group competition, pure and simple. And everything's discreet for as long as the tournament lasts. After the tournament, people go and they do other things. So I think that when you think about the groups that way, then you can see that even in populations where all kinds of mixing is going on, for as long as the social behaviors are being exhibited, they're being exhibited amongst some set of individuals, typically a very small subset of the whole population. And for the duration of that group, it's a perfectly discrete group. Even in the case of like plants, you don't see any groups. You just see a field of plants. But the interactions are local. And so any given plant only interacts with its immediate neighbors. What's really important is local interactions, which are favoring selfishness, and then what's taking place at a larger scale, which is favoring, in the case of plants, you'd look at them as patches. And they would not have discrete boundaries, but they don't need discrete boundaries. So it's differentials taking place at different scales. The most immediate local scale, the smallest scale, is 
the interactions among neighboring individuals. And then as you go up in scale, then there's all kinds of heterogeneity. Nature is amazingly heterogeneity, heterogeneous. And of course, human life is too. We call that a metapopulation. And that population structure differs at many scales. These small groups, larger groups that go extinct after many generations, this all feeds in to the evolutionary process. I'm sorry that it's complex. I'm sorry that you can't model it with algebraic closed form models, but, but that's too bad. But it's important for understanding the evolutionary process. I think simulations are just as compelling for persuasive purposes. But I mean, when we think about, because I think when people see simulations and they work, uh, when you do agent-based modeling, for instance, and you set some parameters and you insert some preferences and you watch what happens, it's hard to not be convinced when you see the results over and over again. And then you adjust the parameters and then you see that. It is, but one of my favorite popular science books is Chaos by James Gleick which introduced the general public to complex systems science. And he does a wonderful job of showing that at the dawn of the computer age, because to simulate, you need computers. And so before then, you had the mathematicians, and they had a tremendous amount of prestige. If you were a famous mathematician, you, you could do things that were beyond most other people. And you know to offer mathematical proofs was just like amazing. And simulations, they're great, as you say, but they do not offer mathematical proof. They just tell you what happens under certain conditions. And yet the math, as we've already said, there's a degree of complexity beyond which the math cannot go. And so up until computer simulations, that just circumscribed the field. People just didn't study that complex stuff. And what's interesting, is, as uh, Gleek recounts, is that the first simulations were looked down upon by the mathematicians. To this day, the most elite economic journals will not publish simulations. It's got to be mathematical, closed form mathematical proofs. And so there was a stigma applied to simulations, even though that was the only way you were going to comprehend complexity. And then gradually, that stigma became dropped. And now, in some fields, although economics is, as with <laughs> as usual behind the times, is computer simulations have their proper place. And so the whole notion of theory and how theory is conducted in a complex world, I think, has been one of the things that's evolved over the last, once again, over the last 50 years. And there's not this privileging of closed-form mathematical models is not done so, so much. You talk about the major transitions in evolution, right, and how including ones where we went from single-cell organisms to multicellular organisms. And when you look at the eusocial insects, right, that's clearly a, a, a transition, right, where you see the creation of these beehives, right, and ant colonies and so forth. But when we think about humans, what exactly is the organism, the superorganism that we're a part of? I think when you look at small-scale hunter-and-gatherer societies, it, it, it kind of makes sense, right? You see these discrete small groups, but when, when we look at humans, we, we can be members of a sports team, we can be part of a company, we're part of a religious community, we belong to a city, and, and 
our sports teams are competing with each other and we can see group selection at work there and we see companies competing against each other and we can see group selection happen there and we can see religious communities. But it seems like these are all happening at the same time, right? And with these overlapping groups, which is something you don't see in any other species. Well, actually you do. For example, if you're a bird, you might give a warning cry. You might see a predator and give a warning cry. And then that warning cry will be heard by birds in the immediate vicinity. Uh, you're also competing for resources with the larger population of birds. And so the group that's salient to food competition is different than the group that's salient for predator warning. And so actually, most species have a range of activities, and every uh, activity has its own appropriate uh, grouping. One way to explain this rigorously is that if you are going to want to model this, either in a math model or a computer simulation, you have to know the fitness of individuals. And if it's a non-social trait, then the fitness of an individual is just some property of that individual, like it's hair color, something like that. But if it's a social trait, the fitness of an individual is based on its own phenotype plus the phenotype of those with whom it is interacting. You can't even not even calculate the fitness of an individual without knowing about the social group in the context of that trait. You can't even get going on an evolutionary model. Mathematically, it's fitness is some function of n, the number of individuals that the focal individual is interacting with, and p, the frequency of the alternative traits in that population. Those values are different for each and every social behavior. So I actually, one of my first contributions to the field was to coin the term trait group, and that which is that, that the group has to be defined separately for every trait that's evolving. That's how general this idea of individuals participating in multiple groups is. And for the most part, evolutionists study the evolution of single traits, altruism or predation or whatever. They don't study organisms as bundles of traits so much as uh, single traits that evolve on a trait-by-trait -trait basis. So we've already established that based on this dynamic of selfishness beats altruism within groups, within group selection, favoring selfishness between group selection, favoring prosociality, and this happening on a trait-by-trait -trait basis, that means that most species are a mosaic of traits that evolve by group selection and traits that evolve by within group selection. They're selfish in some ways, cooperative in others. Um, a major transition takes place when mechanisms evolve that suppress the potential for within-group selection so that between-group selection becomes the dominant evolutionary force. And at that point, the groups become cooperative in, in most respects, never entirely, but in most respects. And they become so cooperative that they become a superorganism, a higher-level organism in its own right. And so this concept has been used to explain everything from the origin of life as groups of cooperating molecular reactions to the first cells, to eukaryotic cells, the work of Lynn Margulis, to multicellularity, uh, in all cases to social insect colonies, and then to human evolution. And in all cases, what we have is this suppression of disruptive lower-level selection. Now, when we get to humans, what we find is that our closest relatives, especially chimps to a lesser degree bonobos, 
they're only a little cooperative. A little cooperation, a lot of within-group competition. You or I would not want to live in a chimp society. It's a very despotic society. Naked aggression is over a hundred times more frequent in a chimp community than in a human community. And the big difference, there's many differences, I'm simplifying, but the big difference is social control. If the alpha male wants to beat up on a lesser male in a chimp, he just does. But in humans, there's a collective capacity to resist bullying and other forms of self-serving uh, behavior. And so that is precisely what's needed for a major transition. And in a hunter-gatherer group, if you try to boss people around, they'll, they'll start out by laughing at you. And then they'll, it'll go up from there. It's never complete, uh, but it, it definitely qualifies as a major evolutionary transition. Of course, first at a very small scale. And then as you follow human history through up to the present, this is the work of Peter Turchin, who, with whom you're probably familiar, uh, what you find is that multi-level cultural evolution that uh, goes both ways. And so there's many collapses, many cases in which within group selection actually prevails over between group selection. But the net direction of it all has been in the direction of larger and larger cooperative uh, societies. And if you look at the present time and center it on an individual, you find, as you say, all of us are participating in many groups. And if you were to look at each and every one of those groups, you'd find that they'd vary tremendously in how cooperative they are. Some are models of cooperation. Sports teams score pretty high. Others are just horrible basket cases dominated. But many businesses are like that, just governed for the benefit of the elites and not good for the group, not good for everyone in the group, nothing like that. So each and every one is a case study of multi-level selection. And as soon as we now take off our science hat and adopt our policymaker hat, then we can see all the room for improvement. If we go to situations where disruptive lower-level selection is taking place, we can solve that by basically being intentional cultural evolutionists. So the, the, the practical import of multi-level selection is huge. Well, I teach in a business school, and so we're, we're interested in corporate organizations. And the suppression of lower-level individual selection, that's what we call organizational design, right? We call that management. I, mean, I teach a whole course on organizational design, and it's really all about designing an environment where the individuals, their actions are in the pursuit of the greater good, right? And when we teach people how to get ahead in business school, th there are people that teach them that they need to follow these Machiavellian approaches. And there are other instructors who will tell them that they need to follow a more pro-social set of behaviors. And what I always find puzzling is that, as you point out in the book, there's really no one rule that fits all environments. And whether you're going to be pro-social or non-pro-social, it's going to benefit you differentially depending on the way the organization is, is set up. Does that mean that when we look at personality differences, it's, it's less that we have pro-social people and anti-social people, but rather the sociability of individuals is, is something that is switched on or off depending on, on the organization in which we find ourselves? Well, the answer to that is both, and I'm going to get to that. So on the one hand, there are individual differences 
But on the other hand, there's a tremendous flexibility and uh, many, many people would love to be pro-social, but they also have enough sense to pull into their shells when in environments where they might be exploited. And so by providing a more supportive environment, people will come out of their shells and this could happen in a very short period of, of time. But if you look at some of the ideas that are current in the business world, and now I can say you've been at that longer than I have, but I've been at it long enough. <laughs> so I can speak of these issues at a professional uh, level. Of course, one thing you find is that the concept of laissez-faire, that the lower level pursuit of self-interest robustly benefits the common good. That's the central metaphor of neoclassical uh, economics, uh, including the shareholder value model of, of uh, Milton uh, Friedman. Uh, what we can say about that is that it's profoundly untrue. And uh, multi-level selection, it just tells you it is not the case that the lower-level pursuit self-interest benefits the common good. Multi-level selection theory tells you higher-level selection is required. If that's your worldview and you actually want to manage a corporation, then it gives you a very limited toolkit so that the only way you can think of aligning the um, interests of your staff with the organization is with financial incentives, for example. It leaves you tone deaf about other ways that the, that, that the group might might work. Here's your very limited and fallacious toolkit that always backsparks. Look at the process of force distribution ranking where you treat the performance of an individual as a property of the individual. Uh, you rank everybody. You reward the ones at the top, the high performers. <laughs> you let the bottom end of the distribution go. It's like you're sifting for gold. You're, you're searching for the gold nuggets and you're throwing away all the, all the pebbles. And of course, it's absolutely nothing social to the performance of the individual. When you do that, is you just create a toxic social environment. All the research that you could ask for uh, to demonstrate that. Nobody's going to do anything that's going to make somebody else look better than them. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. So there's a whole set of, of ideas which are not just present, but dominant in the management field. Uh, the other, though, is centralized planning. The idea that some group of experts in an organization can figure out what to do and then just impose it on everyone else. But organizations are too complex. So you have two things that are dominant narratives in, in the management field, laissez-faire and centralized planning, command and control planning, and neither one works. What does work is a process of managed cultural evolution. It's here where we have a whole field of management and it could not be more important for human affairs, which are suffering under these faulty ideas and uh, just waiting for this, uh, in a series of essays or, or print conversations, this uh, third way of a managed process of cultural evolution. And you can show that in all policy domains, I've had conversations, economics, business, state-level governments, smart cities, entrepreneur zones, uh, you name it, international development, you name it, this two things that don't work and only one thing that can work emerges and is what practitioners typically converge on. So if you look at people that are just not driven theoretically, but they just have a lot of experience, They've typically become pragmatic 
cultural evolutionists. They try a bunch of stuff out. They have some kind of systemic goal. They try stuff out. They stick with what works, and then they repeat. This brings up the importance of what you call symbotypes, right? Yeah. And so if you're designing an organization, you have to pay very careful attention to the culture and to the meaning that you are generating within this group. Well, just to expand on on the concept of symbotypes, it takes us back to a major concept that emerges from all of this called dual inheritance theory, which begins with the observation that in our species, there's two streams of inheritance, the genetic stream common to all species, but then this cultural stream of symbolic uh, thought. And that's so general that it must be true, but, uh, but to actually approach it from a formal evolutionary perspective is important. And so the way I put it is, um, so every human, everyone listening to this, has a collection of genes. We call that your genotype. Uh, those genes influence every, just about anything that could be measured in you. We call that your genotype. But you're also a collection of symbols, some kind of meaning system, worldview, symbolic system inside your head. Let's call that your symbotype. And it influences just about everything that could be measured in you, the very same phenotype. So that's the concept of a symbotype. It's the cultural equivalent of your genes. And for both your symbotype and your genotype, um, there's quite a bit of flexibility. The way you see the world and, the, and your genes, they actually provide you with a repertoire of behavior. So you respond to your environment, but it's a limited repertoire. And if you want to go beyond that repertoire, then you need to change something. You need to change your genes. You need to change your symbols. So to an extent, in order to change the way we see the world and act upon the world, in other words, what takes place on the outside, we must change what takes place on the inside. And it's just, it's, it's, that's the sense in which Milton Friedman is dwelling inside your head. Then you're going to see the world differently, and you're going to act upon the world differently than if Eleanor Ostrom is inside your and that so is, is this the is this would it be similar to an analogy to epigenetics? So you've talked about some of the projects that you've worked on, like the Regents Academy, right? It it seems like the people in those environments, they, they already had within them the tools which they needed. They just needed to have them switched on. So they didn't change their symbotype, but rather they maybe had some switches that went on or, or went off as a result of exposure to a particular environment. Is, is that how we should think about this? Yeah, it's, it's that complex, Greg. And uh, one metaphor I love, it's more than a metaphor, it's an analogy, is to first let's think about the immune system. We understand the immune system pretty well. And we divide it into two components, what we call the innate component and the adaptive component. So the innate component is very elaborate set of mechanisms to fight diseases, but it's genetically inherited, does not change during the lifetime of the individual. Then we have the adaptive component, which is the production of millions of different antibodies and the selection of those that, that attach to uh, antigens. There is an evolutionary process, a, a Darwinian process taking place within our lifetimes, and the two are thoroughly integrated with each other. Now, let's take that whole package of ideas and apply it to our behavioral system. So if you look at our behavioral system, we find that there's an innate component. These are, think of these as like the modules of evolutionary 
psychology. They evolved by genetic evolution. They're triggered by their environment. They're very dense and, and modular. And then we have the adaptive component, which is more or less what B.F. Skinner studied, operant conditioning, in which organisms behave every which way, and then what works gets gets retained. Skinner called that selection by consequences. They both exist, and they're integrated with each other, just like the innate and adaptive components of the immune system. That's very powerful. And I developed that in a little more leisure in this year of life. Now, against that background, there's basic threat mechanisms where if you're threatened, like any sensible turtle, you pull into your shell. And if you change the social environment, you don't have to change the symbotype in this case. You don't have to change the way you think. You just make a good example is like streetlights. Imagine a dark neighborhood. Uh, you won't go out in it because you're, you feel unsafe. Now you put in streetlights. Now you'll go out in it because you feel safe. It didn't change the way you think. It just triggered the appropriate uh, response. And so there's tremendous, in this study you talked about, where we had an opportunity to uh, design a school for at-risk youth. That's what we did. We, we turned it into a safe and secure social environment, the equivalent of a neighborhood with streetlights. And um, the students just noticed that, and they opened up. They opened up. We'd have to, we didn't have to teach them that. Isn't that wonderful? So there's, there's that which can be done. Uh, and then, of course, there's on top of that, there, it is the case that you do need to change the way you think. For example, to adopt an evolutionary perspective to economics and business compared to a neoliberal uh, perspective will definitely change the way you think and see. And I'll, let me add just one more to this, Greg, because part of this blindness that's induced by any meaning system, but especially the neoliberal one, I, we've mentioned Eleanor Ostrom without formally introducing her to, to our audience, but these core design principles, which basically create the safe and secure environment. Uh, the evidence for them in the management literature is super abundant if you know what to look for. Once you know what to look for, that's all been hiding in plain sight, but, no, but people have been blind to what to look for. There's mountains of evidence on behalf of this view just lying around waiting to be organized. And then, of course, there's new studies that can also be done. I think one of the more interesting projects that you worked on was when you decided to study human cities, right? When you looked at Binghamton, right, your hometown, and you decided to look at the city in the way in which you'd been looking at other animal communities, look, looking for differences. And you created like a heat map of pro-sociality, right? I found this fascinating. I wondered why it hadn't been done before, and I wondered why it hasn't been done more widely. And you highlighted that there are these wide discrepancies in terms of attitudes towards uh, pro-sociality. I mean, I think you would find them uh, across areas as well. One of the things that impresses me about Silicon Valley is this pay-it-forward mentality. I find Silicon Valley, even though its reputation is that of these individualistic <laughs> strivers, it, it's actually a place where people share ideas and, and people do favors for one another. And there's a lot of uh, what we call pay it forward, which is not bilateral tit-for-tat reciprocity, certainly not kin selection. So what did you learn from that study of, of Binghamton, and what were sort of the drivers of pro-sociality? Well, in the first place, let me give a shout-out to Victor Huang, who wrote a book called The Rainforest, in which he nailed 
this. And what he shows is that, of course, every city wants to have its entrepreneurial zone, wishes it could be Silicon Valley, but very few are. There are these little islands of, of innovation in a sea of uh, stasis. Silicon Valley is not the only island. And what Victor says is that there's a, a combination that they have which seldom goes together. They are both highly diverse and highly cooperative. And so you mentioned the cooperative part, paying it forward. Uh, but there's also a diverse part. At least, I mean, obviously, there's it's, it's not diverse in every way. But uh, you get a lot of different skill diversity, for example. And typically, it's the homogenous groups that are cooperative. And so in order to have groups that are both diverse and cooperative, that's the secret sauce. But in many ways, Silicon Valley, at least in its early days, was like a hunter-gatherer scale society in which people knew each other well enough so that they went by their reputation. If you screwed somebody over, if you weren't a cooperative person, then that would be noticed soon enough and you wouldn't be invited to the next brainstorming session or or whatever. So it's a very fluid fission. They call it fission fusion. Hollywood is like this also, which is quite fascinating that, you know, every movie is a symphony of cooperation, an amazing symphony. Just look at the credits, their goal at the end of a movie. All those people came together and short noticed. Isn't that incredible? And so that's the combination and having much to do with these parameters, such as, for example, being known by having a reputation, being known by how you've behaved, and so on. There's examples, shining examples, including Wikipedia as a, as a truly shining example of cooperation in the modern age uh, for reasons that you can understand from this multi-level perspective. You can understand it when it works, and you can understand it when it doesn't work. Well, you talked about things like Relational frame theory, I mean, and acceptance and commitment therapy and good behavior game, they were practices that were used to generate good results within the educational environment, with different group environments, people with individual issues that, that needed solving. These principles, they seem to be very effective, but they don't seem to be very common or popular. How do we explain that? And how do we explain the lack of diffusion or at least conscious diffusion of Eleanor Ostrom's design principles when they seem to be so effective. It's back to this concept of an archipelago of island and of thought, thought and practice that basically, if you take any particular domain like political science or education or business and you get something emerges that works, it does spread on the basis of its ideas, but then it comes against boundaries beyond which it is unknown, as you would expect with any kind of island phenomenon. I actually do a exercise in some of my talks as a kind of an icebreaker. I say, okay, turn to your neighbor, and each one, everybody please think about some giant in your life, some intellectual giant. Who's the person on whose shoulders you are standing? Who's the most influential person shaping your ideas? <laughs> Name that person to your neighbor and then see if that person has ever heard of him. So with Eleanor Ostrom is a good example, or Steve Hayes, or any of these, or practices like Toyota methodology, the so-called lean continuous improvement. These are all great ideas. They do spread 
and they then they come up against boundaries, much as species do. You know, why is it that a species originates and spreads, but then it ends up with some kind of distribution beyond which it doesn't exist? And so this is an island biogeography situation for culture, and it's one of the things that an overarching theory is needed to overcome and dissolve those boundaries. Take Toyota, for example. I mean, of course, it's been hugely influential, but not really. Not when you compare it. And did you know it took 100 years to get to its current point? This also highlights the need of catalysis, basically, and the whole concept of catalysis and chemistry, meaning that the rate of a chemical reaction can be accelerated by orders of magnitude with the addition of a small substance. And can that also be true for cultural evolution? Is it theoretically possible that we could accomplish in years what otherwise might require decades or centuries or not take place at all? And if that is possible, can we do it, please? These are all senses of possibility that the theory presents to you. And because once you think it's possible, then you can move towards it. Well, once we learned about genetics, the pace of selective breeding accelerated pretty rapidly. And now, of course, with with CRISPR, it's going to accelerate even more rapidly. Presumably, when it comes to organizational design or policy, we should expect to see radical improvements now that we understand some of the basic building blocks, one would hope. Yeah, and let me credit back to management, business and management, if you look at some of the movements, scientific management, Taylorism and things like that, motion studies, all of these sorts of things, these were more deliberative approaches to business and management practices. And in some respects, they were highly successful, very highly successful in terms of productivity going up, assembly lines, but they also produced externalities and often very extreme externalities. And that brings us back to multi-level selection, now truly multi-level with groups within groups within groups. And what you find is that with just about every social pathology at a large scale can be traced to forms of cooperation at a smaller scale. Very little is truly selfish at the individual level. Typically it's cronyism or nepotism or corporatism or nationalism, or it's groups, basically, that are succeeding in some lower-level sense, but then that's becoming disruptive at a higher-level sense. And so what's needed and what's laid plain with multi-level selection theory is we have to be responsible for our externalities. We have to plan for the welfare of the whole system, the whole global system, really. And then everything underneath that needs to be coordinated. And that's, that just comes through at a root level. That cannot be wrong once you see it clearly. And then there's the question of how do you actually go about that? I mean, that's a pretty tall order that to coordinate everything below the global level with the global level in mind. But that is what needs to be done. It seems like humans are adding increasingly larger levels to their organizational size and scope, right? So we've gone from small scale hunter-and-gather communities to cities, to countries <laughs> to that house up to billions of people. Do, do you think there's a, a limit to the size of the organization or super organization that we could support? Is this idea of having the entire humanity on the globe organized as a, a single super organism, is that something that's 
it's even possible or conceivable? It's more than possible. It's, it's, it's perfectly conceivable. And if human society is cooperative at the scale of millions and billions in the case of the largest nations, then going up to the global, is, there's no technical issues there given technology. You couldn't do it without the internet, but we have the internet. And there's no new tools required uh, for that. And it's really a matter of your social identity. First and foremost, who are you? Another exercise I love to do, you can try it on an audience. Turn to your neighbor and repeat the sentence, I am, 10 times, taking turns. I am blank, I am blank, I am blank, I am blank, 10 times. Fascinating what you, what you get. One of those I ams, and my first I am, is I am first and foremost a human being and citizen of the world. That's my group. That means when I evaluate my actions or your actions, I ask the questions, Where's the, what's the impact? And so I keep track of all the externalities. And if you or I or anything else is doing something which is harmful, all things considered, we shouldn't do that. That just defines the normative system. It's no more difficult. I mean, it's somewhat more difficult, but just as possible to do that at the global. In fact, it's easier at this point, because all the identities have mixed so, so much that it's... Here's another point is that 200 years ago, it was beyond the imagination to think of yourself like that, to think of the whole world as a cooperative unit. Now, it's like almost the only thing that makes sense. Well, David, I'm certainly going to think about creating a new course on Darwinian management <laughs> based on these concepts. Please, let me help you. Let's do that together. Yeah, and I, I definitely recommend everybody check out A Life Informed by Evolution. It's a really fantastic model of how to be interdisciplinary. And as for the other books, I just don't know where one can start. It depends on your interest, but maybe with Does Altruism Exist or This View of Life, or if you really aren't fully comfortable with your understanding of evolution check out evolution for everyone thanks so much david talk again soon thank you greg let's uh, keep working together thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast produced by university fm if you enjoyed today's episode please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app to listen to our other episodes please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.